Welcome to another Fintech Insider. I'm Sam Mall, the host. Before we kick off the show, I wanted to make sure that if you're in the Atlanta area next week, next week being uh, July 26th-ish that evening, if you haven't already, you need to pick up tickets for After Dark 6. We're bringing you an awesome night with some amazing Fintech guests, pizza, drinks, and of course, Mr. Piggles. You have to show up to find out who that is. We'll be at Cabbage's headquarters in Midtown. Go to afterdark.11fs.com to register. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. Howard Lindzen is Canadian. Evidently, that's really an important point as every single bio I read about Howard starts with, Howard Lindzen is a Canadian blah, blah, blah. Well, not necessarily blah, blah, blah. Although if you listen to Howard, blah, blah, blah would make a great branding t-shirt for him. Howard's an author. He's a super angel investor. He's a hedge fund manager. He's the co-founder of StockTwits, managing partner of Social Leverage. And he's both an insightful and funny as hell commentator on Twitter. Trust me, go follow him. And Howard, by the way, you need to do in more interviews on CNBC. They are hilarious. I haven't had the chance to meet Howard face to face yet. We did this interview over the phone, but I can tell you, I wouldn't mind meeting up with him at a clubhouse after a round of golf. I think we'd have a pretty fun time. Here's what's funny about you. Your life and career span, when, when you look at it, and I, I don't know if you've ever reflected on this, you've kind of been, when it comes to, when it comes to social and, and technology and the integration of both and, and economics and finance, you, you've been well ahead of the curve. So starting at 10 and being Etsy before there was Etsy, you know, and eBay before there was eBay. I mean, you did the same thing with YouTube, in my opinion, and, and you know, what you launched there, the videos that you did the same thing, obviously, with stock twits, watching you on your calls when it comes to to voice, when it comes to, you know, Facebook and, and e-com. It seems like you're, I don't know, when you look back on it, were you at the right time or were you too early in some of these things? I try not to think about it like that because I'm not the inventor of things. I am uh, a classic follower of things. I get excited like a kid. Uh, I'm lucky in that I don't understand technology well. I mean, people that work with my partners that work with me laugh at me. My kids laugh at me. Even my wife has now surpassed me in terms of running things from a printer to a scanner to, to the month-to-month accounting. I think I think it's, you know, I've, I've been lucky to be around people that let me just be good at what I'm good at. Part of it is people at first get mad because they go, I'm, 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 it's an act. Nobody could be this bad. You can't be this helpless. You're just lazy. And then I've luckily been around people that realize, wait a minute, he really is Larry David of everything he touches. And we're best just to let him be the Larry David of whatever he wants to be Larry David of that day. And I'm pretty good at stumbling and bumbling with my own vision of things of how I see products and industries working and applying my own, you know, inspiration to these or, or my own um, pressure to these things that I'm passionate about. And I think more than being ahead of the curve, I've just been, it evens out, even Steven type of stuff. Like you hear from Seinfeld is like, even Steven It's like with video, I was pretty much perfect, right? Like YouTube comes out, I go, there's going to be CNBC on YouTube and you know, I was inspired by Rocket Boom, and I said, "But Rocket Boom's doing it for who's going? Like that's not going to work. There's no real 
you know, wealthy audience there, but I'm going to go do that for, for finance and CBS acquires us, you know, six months later. But on the other hand, with StockTwits, you know, I was inspired by Twitter and I said, well, we're going to create the, you know, a Bloomberg terminal for chatter around uh, stocks. And 10 years later, no acquirer. So, so lessons are, you know, you really have to love what you're doing because sometimes you can end up doing it your whole life. And, you know, the world works in mysterious ways. You know, you can, you can nail things and never sell, or you can be at the right place in the right time and not even get it right and get acquired for more than you could ever dream of. So I think it's just about showing up every day, kind of staying, uh, trying to be not too far ahead of the curve and not being too far behind the curve. But I'm more thinking about who, who, you know, the way I look at it is I follow smart people and if they're doing stuff, uh, I figure most people aren't doing it yet, but if they have a history of, of doing stuff early and being correct, you might as well follow those people. So my, my day job, my company, we're, you know, we're consultants for large financial institutions, large banks, and do a lot in the fintech space. And the comment that I constantly hear from bank executives, and I make this comment about them, is that their biggest problem isn't ideas. Their biggest problem you know, isn't having those clever people. Their biggest problem is is actually overcoming inertia, is making a decision. And actually, and I've actually had that quote from a CEO of a large bank. When I asked him, what could we do to help you? And he said, help us overcome inertia. We just cannot make a decision and act. And listening to you and looking back at the things you did, I don't think that's a problem you have. You seem to be naturally curious and willing to take that step. Yeah, with, with it comes with some incredible risks. You know, you let certain people into your life that are the wrong people and you end up with cancer that you got to remove from the system, human cancer. and but, you know, with my kids who are now in college, you know, my daughter right now is deciding between living, you know, third year living by herself or living in a sorority. And, you know, I can't I can't make the decision for her, but I can help her explain to her that a decision has to be made and that there is no right or wrong decision. You got to narrow it down to two pretty good decisions. And then that's a decision like, you know, and then you got to live with the decision. It's just you kind of you got to keep moving forward. There's these people that just get paralyzed. And, uh, you know, with them, I try and they always look at me and go, oh, I can't believe you're so lucky you can make decisions. And I don't know if it's about luck or if it's just about practice. I look at things like you just got to keep moving forward. Maybe I'm not a good CEO because of that. It's like it's easy for me to make decisions, but to get everybody else motivated and move in the same direction of you, that's a special skill. And that's why I love, that's why I love public investing so much, too, is like, I see through the nonsense and try and find companies that are moving as quickly as they can in a good direction. And that comes down to generally a great CEO as well. Same in a startup. It's a CEO that can get not just make decisions themselves, but kind of pull teams along with them. That's an interesting comment you just made. But to be self-reflective and say, maybe in some aspects, I'm not a great CEO because of that. You don't, you don't hear that as often as you'd like. Maybe people in leadership to some degree aren't uh, so self-aware i think that's the comment i would make yeah I, I think it's the key i think the world like ted knight said in uh caddyshack the world needs ditch diggers too i think everybody because you can read elon musk and all you know there's so many great ceos with huge companies right now and they're publicly sharing their stories and they're being uh dissected every second that people think they can be the CEO. But there's nothing wrong with being a great number two or a great number three. And 
I think we're that's been that's been part of the dilemma as an angel investor still is you know my job is to pick great number ones and number twos you can pick the number threes and number fours and number fives and recruit i i struggled with that myself maybe because i was a hedge fund manager for so many years and i made so many decisions myself and click a button and it's done and if you're wrong you gotta unclick it or you know click it again and take your loss i think my i think i was just too wrecked by the time i started wall strip and then with stock twits you know it was kind of an idea that everybody wanted to invest in and I talked myself into it. You know, being a CEO is, is a lot of responsibility, and it's not so much about just raising money, which I was good at. It's about recruiting, which I was terrible at, and then getting people to understand why you're doing this and where. I was just like I was incredulous that people just couldn't work harder than me and figure out exactly what I wanted without communicating that to them. Why do you think you're were horrible at the recruiting side? Just it's not an interest of yours, or just is it reading people, or what? I can't think of anything more awful than than recruiting and everybody. It's, it's like dating. I can't imagine how horrible dating is. So um, I just don't have the patience. You know, I see things and then I want to see them done my way. I wasn't willing to learn the other parts of being a CEO. I'm a piece of that. I I don't know, you know, and there's a lot more thrill for me to cozy up to a CEO or pick a CEO that could build a billion dollar company and just sit back and help them a little bit than there is building a billion dollar company myself. So as soon as I knew that, that's when I, you know, started angel investing. I think that that's when I got content in my own career. I'm 51. um, And you know, it's, it's, it's been a fun, I've had a fun ride, but I think when I realized what I was good at and what I wasn't is when I got the most comfortable, um, you know, and accepting it myself. And, you know, I used to be really focused, you know, I was told this when I was younger, right? Really focus on what you're not good at and improve on it. And, well, I look at like in comedy, like a Judd Apatow, right? And you go, fuck, the guy's everywhere. How does he do that? You know why? Because he's focused on I know every project he does. He must say, this is what I'm doing. This is where my name goes in the, in the project. Uh, are you with me? And then you guys got to do all the rest. Like he, he, you build these great brands. You see it in, in content a lot. How is that person part of all these things? It's because they stick to what they know and they find other people that accept that. And then they go as fast as they can. And, you know, being able to spot that type of, of what I want to be or what things should be like helps you, helps me be an angel investor, you know, putting teams together uh, seeing through the nonsense, helping people get the cap tables right, helping people pick good investors, you know, all those little things at the beginning of a company to get companies launched and on the right trajectory, you know, I can compare to, you know, the credits in a movie when you see the same names over and over again. It's just a routine and a process and you just got to keep doing it. So is it is it safe to say that you've got certain people within your circle that you really trust and you come back to over and over again? Yeah, I think all of all the good investors do. Obviously, you go through streaks with certain people because of what the markets are doing or what uh, sectors people are interested in or certain stages of your life. But yeah, it's like putting the old band back together again. You know, it makes sense that as you get older, you work with second and third time entrepreneurs because everybody knows what to expect and you kind of know what the founder wants and and um, so I think it's really it becomes 
you know, market goes through phases. It went for a while there. We were taking first time founders at a, at a college every minute and it's not a perfect scenario. And now we're, it feels like for me, I'm looking for people with domain experience, especially around FinTech. Why would I choose somebody? I don't care if the smartest person in the world in their third company, if they don't really understand FinTech, uh, it's, it's a little late in the game to try and train somebody about the pitfalls of the industry. Amen. Yeah, that investment in Robinhood, good move, by the way. That was, uh, again, one of my personal favorites. I thought that was uh, calling the industry out. Yeah, the first time I met them, they had pivoted. So it's not like, you know, when we, the original idea of starting StockTwits was, okay, we're going to build a, con- you know, the, the brokerage wasn't important. I, I got a lot wrong um, around timing on StockTwits. Like to me, when, when I saw Twitter, I'm like, okay, that's Bloomberg. Finally, um, Silicon Valley Bank, or Silicon Valley, sorry, not bank, Silicon Valley has a chance to disrupt Bloomberg. Because if you have everybody smart in the world chatting on a platform, that's what made Bloomberg great, right? The data set that Bloomberg had around bonds was one thing, but like if you have everybody chatting, that's what, you know, Bloomberg is a social network. You pay two grand a month and they have a, a great set of data products, and then but you can chat to other people that are willing to pay $2,000 a month for a product. So, so I kind of got thrown for a loop because Twitter wasn't interested in building that. Um, and so I started stock twits, which would be the same thing. And so my assumption even on that was someone's going to build a broker with an API that we could trade right from stock twits and obviously Twitter. And I've just been mystified how wrong I've been as, as much as it, I've been right. I've been just so wrong about like Twitter, not buying a broker, Twitter, not buying DraftKings. you know, so it's been so easy for, for Twitter to be in the transaction business. And, and it turns out squares in the transaction business. And so there's just, I got a lot wrong when Robin Hood came to me, they showed up at the meeting in Google glasses by Zhu and blah. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? But they had this product that was beautiful and a vision that was incredible. And they understood that, you know, they were building a utility brokerage with it was seamless and simple to use. And I said, you know, let's attach that API to the stock twits API. And they thought that was a good idea too, and built a, a, a pretty great API to start. And they kind of moved away from being an open platform, uh, maybe because there's just not a lot of financial apps like stock twits that have users, unfortunately, but you know, my thesis was corrected. There's a hundred thousand plus people on Stocktwits that are connected to Robinhood. So in the end, for a small, you know, and Stocktwits has made three hundred thousand, almost four hundred thousand monthly active, logged in, crazy, uh, addicted users, and almost half of them are attached to Robinhood. So the thesis was right. It's just the big dogs never really got into that business, right? E Trade, Schwab, Ameritrade, Fidelity. Their APIs are like from 1920. Uh, they're clunky. They don't really want to have an open API because they want to put a wall around their. They spend five hundred dollars to acquire a customer, so God forbid they let a customer mingle with somebody else. And luckily, this bull market has helped those companies. But in the next transfer of money, you will see. And so, as much as I love Schwab, I'm long Schwab. I'm too lazy to take my account away from Schwab. I don't care about any of the features that Schwab has. Uh, but they have an eighty billion dollar market cap right now. Uh, that market cap is going to flow to new brands. I don't know when, and it may take 20 years, but it's, it's going to flow away. Imagine 
A new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. You had a great quote in one of the thousands of interviews you did, which is something along the lines of um, those that have moats do everything they can to keep that moat <laughs> and block people from on the wall. Zuckerberg and Cheryl just did it yesterday. They threw everybody under the bus. They know what their motive. Instead of throwing you know anybody under the bus, they just threw the industry under the bus to take the industry down with them. And I, I think the markets are going to be tough for tech because of that. Pretty evil. They do some evil stuff, but that, that was a pretty evil way to handle it, whether they know it or not. And, and basically invited Warren Buffett. And they basically went on TV and invited a different type of asset manager to say, listen, if you want predictable cash flow post-regulation era, Facebook's for you. I think it's a pretty good angle, but it's also typically mean Facebook. So I think we're in for a, that. That I wrote about it a couple of days ago, but that's kind of scary what they just did. Yeah, you're, you're a prolific uh, content producer, and I'm going to come to that in a minute. But I, it's like you read my mind because your two recent blog posts on Facebook, when you actually called them the, the digital Equifax Experian, <laughs> That I laughed so damn hard at that. That was one of my favorite lines. I think that 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 you've written, you know, because at the end of the day, right, it comes back to the data and how they're selling it and what they're using it for and why. You know, I think you said, you know, it's basically. What did you? You actually wrote Facebook has never not been not evil. We've always been the product. They're a digital Equifax, so nothing about them and our data would surprise me. Yeah, but that was the way it was. If you search my blog, I was writing about that in 2007, too. You know, if Equifax TransUnion used to own our mailbox, you'd go to your mailbox and 50% of it would be them kind of, what? How do they know? How do people know I'm here? And it was because, you know, Equifax and TransUnion were in control of your lives, you know. And now when you open up your computer uh, or even keep it closed, Facebook, Amazon, these, these companies are, they know everything about you. It's, it's just a different generation. Instead of we're being watched uh, not through our pencils and our forms that we filled out, we're just being watched through our daily actions. So a little more accurate, a little more creepy, and we're going to have to learn to live within that framework. So I, I mentioned the blog, which which I absolutely love. You know why I like your blog is because you you write in in short spurts. It's incredibly easy to digest. And for somebody like me who's, who's trying to digest a lot of content, that's uh, – you know, that's something I incredibly appreciate, right? I mean, I know you could do long form if you wanted. I mean, it was the same with Wall Strip, right? I mean, first the content across different. Yeah, I mean, it's a skill that I've developed. I mean, you know, I've, I, I remember my first hedge fund letter, 1990, and I was so proud. You know, I got my hedge fund, you know, and the Asian contagion and the, yeah, the Asian contagion. And I'd made a little money and not lost my ass. And I write this like four page letter about how well we did, you know, to my 30 LPs. And, and one of my LPs wrote me back and he says, I just want the fucking number. Really not trying to be me. It just destroyed me. I was like, I was just like, 
oh my God, what a dick. But when I really got to it, I'm like, wow, that guy just is so right. Like, what the hell does he care how like the S&P did this? And so it's just like this backhanded stab in the heart that straightened out my whole life of like self-importance was, you know, from a friend of mine who wasn't really trying to be mean. It was just like, dude, what is the number? Like I work for a living. Am I up or am I down? And I think that's just, you know, that was like therapy. Like you could go to a therapist for six years before they release you on, on that. Or you can have one of your friends tell you the truth and just kind of work that into your, into your flow. And so, you know, the idea is to educate people and and to make myself smarter. And I read all day and I got to dissect it down to something that I can act on as well. And like yesterday with, with tech, it was like, you could see it coming. Like Zuckerberg, everybody's talking about what he did and didn't say, but what he really did say about regulation was really scary. And now you see the markets tech got just destroyed the following day. So there's these little signals that if you listen closely and people don't want seven page missives to prove how smart I am. They just want to see how we do things and get them an idea of how to survive. Well, when you're producing that much content and, and you're, and again, I really appreciate it because when it comes to the blog, it's, it's almost daily, right? Or and there's that, there's that yeah. instant pattern. To- if there's an error and I, and I like push send and something happens and it doesn't go, I, I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> Howard Linden has no staff. I have 10 fingers, God bless. And then I have, uh, my partner, Tom, who I went to grad school with of 25 years, is my right hand. I got my wife, Ellen, of 22 years, who just still thinks I'm funny and puts up with it. And then we have another partner, Gary. And nobody makes me do stuff that I'm not good at. And they know I'm not joking. Like, they know that if the email doesn't go out. Some people call me and go, are you okay? I go, what do you mean okay? I go, I, isn't the email out? Like, I don't know how campaign monitor works. If there's a holdup, we lose a day. But I, I do write every day. It's just when it doesn't go out every day, it's generally user error. I think, one, it really helps define the brand that is Howard. Um, and, and you know, the when you can go back and you look for patterns, right? I mean, that's what you do in investing is you look through the signal through the noise and you look through patterns. And that's something I incredibly appreciate, again, with you when you go back and you look at it. Like you said, you know, the, the commentary that you've given on, on Facebook, the same commentary on Twitter. Um, you know, on Amazon, you've been bullish Amazon for God knows, I don't know how long, um, and talking about them. When you, when you talk about CEOs, how, where do you rank Bezos? Well, again, I, I am not an Amazon person. So I've ne- my wife, so again, like I don't shop because when I shop, my budget goes out of whack because I buy everything. I walk into a store, someone looks at me the wrong way. I buy everything. So I've learned and I'm like, was a spendaholic. So Amazon is a dream for me in that. I don't want to shop online. So Ellen and I just have people order me stuff. Oh, that looks interesting. Do you mind ordering it for me? So I don't think I even know how to use Amazon. But it really comes down to AWS. We did a wall strip back in 2006 or 2007 when a friend of mine explained on one of our shows, AWS. And I wasn't even, once I heard about AWS in 07, I just was like, that's it. And I still believe AWS is undervalued as a brand to the whole company and I don't even care about the shopping. Now, I think what's interesting now about Amazon is search is the fact that just people go there to search. And then 
the creepy stuff around the audio, which I'm not into yet, uh, having a little owning your living room and, and listening in on everything. So yeah, I'm bullish on Amazon. I, I, I'm trying to think my favorite company that changed my life would have been Apple, you know, just the luck of having the store across from my office in Phoenix, one of the first stores at the Biltmore. Apple, and it was just such a beautiful store and it was just the right time at the right place with my strategy to just ride Apple from 2013, 2003 to today. But really, the great companies, it's its founder CEOs for the general part. I mean, I'm, you, know, you don't have to own 100 stocks. You just got to own the right stocks. And, and businesses that run themselves can obviously be run by different CEOs, but certain businesses run by their founders are just unstoppable. And we've seen it of late with Musk and Amazon and uh, Netflix and, you know, even Apple because Tim Cook was with uh, Steve Jobs for so long. But you're seeing these kind of Mark Benioff with Salesforce and even, you know, we'll see where Aaron Levy takes box over the next 10 years. There's just some incredible companies being run by founders. You know, it's, it's funny that, uh, again, this, I think this is from your blog post when you're talking about. Uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg, the lawn you had, which the big venture capitalists have moved on from social and into outer space anyway. <laughs> you just mentioned Musk. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just reading about space all day. It doesn't interest me at all. So it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of scary because you don't, you hate the smartest people moving off an area because it makes you feel alone. <clears throat> it's harder to follow smart people if everybody's off in a direction that doesn't interest you. So, you know, energy, biotech, space. Those are three areas that if the world went that way only, it'd be a little scary for me because I'm used to, I'd like to invest in what I know and I don't feel like learning new things. That goes back to the Larry David side of me. So it becomes a little scary at moments like this because things are changing. And if we have a bear market here, I mean, if the market really corrects, there's going to be new leadership, which is just normal market history. And maybe time to learn some new tricks. And that's always a little scary for people in my job. The same things that worked before don't generally work again. I think not enough people are, are honest about that. And they, they try and, you know, the church of what's working now, they try and learn the flavor of the day. And I think it's hard to be a great investor if you're, con- if you're, if you're all over the place. You know, I'm trying to focus on what I know. Luckily for me, I think financial services is day one. And companies like Robinhood, although they took longer to come to the forefront, are going to really accelerate the pace of change in financial services. So my company is based out of London. I spent a ton of time in Europe, um, even though I'm focused on the US. So we've got, you know, PSD2, we've got open banking, this whole concept. We've got companies like Monzo. Actually, one of our company founders was one of the co-founders of Monzo and Starling Bank over there. We're seeing significant movement, you know, like with Revolut, with Nutmeg, with a ton of companies in the UK. And, you know, when I look at the US, obviously Robinhood, right? I mean, I see different fintech um, solutions that are addressing this. There's Acorns. There's there's a bunch of cool Square. Uh, I guess PayPal with Venmo. Um, you know, there's starting to be some big. There's starting to be some big brands. Yeah, I, I, you know, hopefully, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, especially when it comes to banking, we'll see um, you know more and more openness, if you will, to that concept. It, that's something I was curious about. I wanted to ask you about this. You were talking about Robinhood and, and users when it comes to stock twits. So let, let's talk about data because you do sit, you know, on, on interesting data. Are you able to to um, collate information like that to know, you know, the number of users potentially that are on Robinhood or, or, or are you, I'm, I'm assuming that's the underlying data you're able to pull and see? Yeah, it's a really good question. 
if I'm a hedge fund and I had LinkedIn's data or Salesforce's data and use it in the right way and figure out the mood of my Salesforce, it sure would be easy to predict you know, what sales are going to be at the next quarter. So there is data that's better than most data. The, other, the problem with data, and I try and explain to people is, you know, it's one thing to get the data and one thing to understand the sentiment, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to trade it properly. What I love about StockTwits data is I don't have inside information because everybody's just a, a, a number and, you know, most people have uh, pseudonymous, you know, I like the idea of pseudonymous, which is why I like Twitter and StockTwits for finance. But what I think I have an advantage of, and anybody on StockTwits could do this, or, or on Twitter, I guess, theoretically, is I've looked at the same data over and over and over each night at the same time, kind of from a macro perspective, you know, bullish versus bearish tags, which tickers people are talking about to, get, to kind of get a sense for the true mood of a certain flavor of investor that is the 300,000 people daily, you know, locked into stock twits. They have patterns, and it's friends of mine, even though there's 300,000 of them and certain amounts come and go. I really, from looking at one sheet of paper a day, I can kind of get a feel for where the market is. And it's not perfect, but it's a, it's a flavor that's just so special. And I think the great traders and investors always you know, have that cheat sheet of something like a warm blankie that they know, okay, I, this is my trusted go-to piece. It's never going to be perfect, but it really gives you a, a feel for a, a feel for the playing field that we're investing from, and that helps me with the blog as well. And I like sharing it. You know, most people don't don't use what I write. I don't care, uh, but it helps me put it down to to give me conviction and keeps me honest in how I how I position myself. Kind of like I like that warm blanket analogy, and and again, I think we had talked about this. You know, those those folks that have run in and out of your circle that you really. Um, gotten close to is it? Uh, I'm trying to remember if I read this right or not. Fred Wilson was actually your first investor for Wall Street. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I was kind of stalking him on his blog. Um, what I did to you, that worked. Yeah, I, t- I do this thing when I speak about uh, foreplay, social foreplay. It's just a, a, it's a it's a skill that most people don't have now, right? They they just attack you or they ask for something right away. It's like, oh, you inspired me. Hey, I got the next Google. Can you fund me? You know, there's none of the, there's no foreplay anymore. And women like foreplay, even men like foreplay. You got to have that. You got to have some game. And uh, back in the day with Fred's blog, there was all these characters, right? When blogging was just beginning, everybody would hang out on Fred's blog, and everybody became kind of like a character, like a Trump. There was Fat Howard and slim jim and crazy uh, harold and um we were just appreciative that fred was was blogging about this stuff anyway so i i uh he had started street.com fred it was first money in street.com i didn't know that with jim kramer and so i pitched him my idea out of the blue and he invested so that's how that came about and it's because he knew me even though uh, he hadn't met me physically he kind of knew how how i thought that's what makes fred Fred. And, you know, lucky for everybody, it turned out really good. And we've been investing uh, together since. And Fred had introduced me, once he invested, he, he gave me Brad Feld's phone number, Mark Pincus, Roger Ehrenberg, and I was just dialing for dollars and everybody invested in Wall Street. So it was, pretty, it was a pretty cool cap table. Not that I knew any of these people, but it was a cool cap table. Who's a uh, better golfer, you or Fred? Oh, man, you know, he, me, because, uh, 
Fred is, uh, <laughs> but that's not saying much. Uh, I think I, I only beat him by one stroke the other day. So I would say, like, it's frustrating. I, I hit this golf age where it's just like, I love golf, but my son's so much better than me, and my body doesn't do what I it's supposed to do, and my, you know, got a little bit of the shakes, and I don't look good in golf clothes. It's just a combination of things that make me say, five hours on a golf course isn't the number one thing I want to do. Oh, my God, you are, Larry David. That's amazing. That was a... You know what? Um, I, I'd mentioned this before, the, the fact of your consistency when it comes to blogging um, and generating content. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned Brad Felt because, you know, there's a guy who I've had the chance to interview him before um, and somebody who puts literally everything out there. Right. With Brad. Um, very. Which, which I admire. My wife, my wife would kill me. <laughs> like I know Amy really well. My wife would kill me if I put out as much as Brad did. So I, so the general rule of my blog, my wife likes it. She reads it every morning. And if I get out of line, she'll just, she'll just say, whoa, you bring that back in, man. And I, I'm not saying that Amy doesn't do that to Brad. It's just Brad has his own raw ability. And I've been lucky to, yeah, get mentored by Brad and wa- grow up watching him write. So, yeah, yeah Brad's great. You know, you, one of my rules of thumb of, of knowing if I'm going to like somebody or at least have, you know, stuff I can talk to them about, believe it or not, comes back to if they own dogs. And then to some point, the number of dogs, there's a reason I knew I'd like Brad, um, was the dogs. You know, if, if you got a dog named Bagel, I'm probably going to like you a little bit because it's a good name. So good on you for doing that. Another reason. Yeah, I, I grew up in grew up in a house where I thought dogs had cooties. So it wasn't like I was a dog person. Uh, you know, we had all these weird things about, uh, my mom had all these weird rules. And so I had, that explains who I am today. But if a kid doesn't have a dog, I, it's kind of like I shed a tear, you know, I, uh, watching my kids grow up with two dogs and the unconditional love and just the joy that it brings our family, you know, I would probably have 10 but we'll 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 have dogs the rest of our lives. So we've had dogs since the kids were, were basically born. And I just don't I can't imagine a household of kids without a dog. And um it's why I've been so focused on the you know, personally and investing in the pet industry as well. Um such a no brainer of of growth because it's just such a great thing. Um but yeah, you know. Uh, Brad uh, definitely is a dog lover as well. You know, there's there's currently no dogs in the White House. Did you like that segue of where I'm going next? There's there are no the first time in a long time. So there's no. Well, it's hard to have a dog when there's no soul. It's a really it's an enigma over there. You know, my problem is I'm being called Pinko by really good friends, and I'm like the I'm like Alex P. Keaton. I grew up around Alex P. Keaton, so I'm like wore a suit to school and knickers, and uh, had gel in my hair and and uh you know family ties was the show that i watched i loved i was a republican or at least i was a reagan republican i was like 14 years old and in you know that's who was my idol alex p keaton and, was, and that's where i wanted to you know kind of um wrap this a little bit is you know when it comes to um you're never shy about giving opinions that's another reason i i really like your content and watching you and what you do and You've not been shy whatsoever, you know, after the election. And you and I are in an industry where I would say there's a significant number of folks 
that um, I'm confident voted for the current president. And I'm, I'm wondering, and mm-hmm. Anna said it, you're being called a pinko, which is rather funny. If you're a Reagan Republican, you're basically a centrist Democrat today in my I think I'm, I'm pretty right wing. So I'm not going to defend my right wingness. I grew up as a Jewish kid. I went to day school in Toronto, uh, you know, six day war in Tebby. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to Israel, you had, a, you had a long laundry list of things you weren't allowed to do from like picking up garbage, kicking a can. So, you know, I was polarized, not to hate people, but, I, you know, it was like, be careful. Uh, you know, that's what you saw on TV, hijackings, you know, as a Jew in Toronto, that's, it was the Jews against the Arabs. So you're going to grow up conservative, then combined with, you know, uh, family ties and Reagan, it's like, I didn't think anything was wrong with being right wing. And then I go to Phoenix, obviously, I chose a place where, you know, you can, I can shoot my neighbor. Uh, if he looks at me the wrong way, have you done that? And just go put on a. <laughs> I'm not admitting to it. It's quite a possibility that that's happened. <laughs> yeah, I'd be the uh, now I'm a now I'm a pinko because I hate a guy who isn't right wing. It's really a bizarre turn. Yeah, the I mean Donald Trump is not the right wing that I want right wing to be, and it's it's just disheartening because it's not fun to talk about politics. It's so unproductive. Mm-hmm. So I always hate myself when I do it because I really don't know much about politics. I just know how I feel about things. And it feels like we're being conned. And I don't like arguing with people when there's no argument to be had. We're being conned. He doesn't care. He's not. He's a very negligent person. Um, doesn't matter how smart or not smart he is. He's negligent. Uh, he lets his businesses and his buildings and everything's about one thing. And that's, that's my only argument is like the one job in the world. We don't want someone to be completely negligent. So that's my only argument. Anything else is just me not liking him personally. And he's open target for that, but it's not, not proud of myself when we have to make fun of the president. I mean, my career essentially took off when I, when I saw the, the, the power and the, the niche communities that, that you could, have when it comes to social media, right? I don't care what platform it was. And, you know, to some degree, and to a significant degree, so same with you. So when you look at, are, are you happy with how socials evolved or do you think it's evolved or people are for the most part, not most part, but there's a significant number of assholes who like to hear their voice and are, are pretty loud. You think Tim Berners-Lee looks back and goes, ah, damn it. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. I wouldn't be where I am without it. Uh, complain about it too. You know, it's about community. Stocktwitz is very proud of our ability to grow with a, and and have our. I just think it's about rules, right? Like Stocktwitz has some house rules that kind of been within a few words the same since the day one. Phil Perlman and I and Sean McLaughlin and Justin uh, Paterno. We just sat down and said, "Hey, how do we want people to behave? Well, how are we willing to kick people off?" Uh, it's not that hard to do. You know, and you can, if you're really goddamn funny, we'll let you be mean. If you're not really funny, you're going to get kicked off because just, we can't, you got to, it's like velociraptors in Jurassic Park. At some point, crazy people and the animals are going to get through the fence because they're smart. They figure it out. And if you let them stay on the other side of the fence for too long, it's over. And a community is about, you know, setting rules and you can't have a set of rules for one people and a set for the other because it just breaks things down. I think 
Twitter's stronger than ever because the products kind of just stayed the same, you know, people yelling. And I think the block feature is one of the great features of all time. It's undervalued. Block and mute are, you know, that's why Twitter's worth $30 billion, uh, or $20 billion, whatever it's worth. Those two features in a pseudonymous network are really powerful. Unfortunately, people don't know how to use them well enough, so you get, you know, it's dangerous. But I think... You know, a constitution around how people behave is important, whether it's a small neighborhood or a large neighborhood. And I think the the number one thing I'm proud of about Stockbridge is to grow to our size and still have really interesting discussions when the market's up and down and keep the penny stocks at bay and push people away that don't belong. And we still keep our integrity around, hey, if you like talking about stocks and talking about them all day long, Stockbridge is for you. And kind of Fred came up with that. Fred Wilson came up with that line. And it's like, I hated that idea at first. And now Ian, our CEO, uh, has inherited at least a community that, that just knows the constitution of what StockTwits is. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Review us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. And trust me, we read every single one of them. And friend us on Facebook and or Twitter. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.